As you're taking your seats, you can go ahead and grab your Bible and open up to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 16. We uh, kicked off this past week this new series on the church, and I'm thankful for Pastor Brian in setting that up for us and establishing us the King of the church, the King of redemption, Jesus Christ. And we want to continue to wade into this topic of the church and um, root ourselves in a biblical theology and understanding of the church. Some of you may be asking the question, why? Why are we doing an entire series on the church? Why are we spending this kind of time um, jumping into this topic? What's the point? One of the main reasons is that it is becoming increasingly clear that in our culture in particular, in North American culture, there seems to be confusion and misunderstanding about the church. And I don't think this is anything new to our culture. I think this has been consistent since the inception of the church. There is always confusion about what it means to be a part of the church, about what the existence of the church is for, about the purpose of the church. But I would say that in our culture, there is increasingly more so a disconnect from the church, an overemphasis on autonomy, on individualism. These are marks of our culture, and we see this creeping into the church, not just in the life of our church, although there is always evidence of that, but in the, the church at large. This entire series, therefore, is in one sense a, a series of recruitment meetings. Now, some of you are offended by that already. Okay? You're like, I didn't come here to be recruited. I just want to be clear up front. What we are doing in this series is recruiting people to a true understanding of the church of Jesus Christ. And if you don't like that, I'm sorry, um, but just so we're clear, that's what we're doing, okay? This, this is incredibly important because the process that we're going through here is really a process that Jesus Christ is calling us to. He is the one who recruits people into the church of Jesus Christ. Some of you are saying, well, I'm already, um, I'm already a part of the church. Are you sure about that? Are, are you sure that you're a part of the church? Some of you actually are and you know it, and so this really, this whole series is to remind you, to instruct you, to encourage you, to keep on going. For some of you, you're you're really not sure if you're a part of the church, or you're not sure you want to be a part of the church, and so this is an attempt, this whole series, to persuade you about why commitment to the church, about being a part of the body of Christ, is critical for you. And for all of us, this is an attempt, listen, this whole series is an attempt to compel us to move forward, to be the church that God is calling us to be, to grow deeper in our understanding of the church, is to move us further and push us out forward as the church of Jesus Christ in a way in which he has called us to. So I am going to, by the grace of God and through the word of God and by the power of the spirit of God, attempt to recruit you to the church of God. We just went on a family road trip. I just got back with my family yesterday. We were traveling across the U.S. on a little bit of a road trip. Uh, Part of the trip, we went to North Carolina. We spent some time with some of our friends there. And as we were leaving North Carolina, heading towards South Carolina, we went through a stretch on the freeway there um, where we saw at least a dozen billboards promoting and recruiting for the military. Um, The stretch along the freeway passes through a city that uh, hosts a fort, a military fort. It's called Fort Bragg. And across this stretch, all of these billboards were doing one thing. They were compelling people and trying to persuade people and trying to recruit people to join the military. 
Now, I have a, a great deal of respect for anybody who is in the armed services um, in, in this country and in other countries. I think it's an incredibly valuable thing. I think it's a very noble thing. It's something incredibly honorable. It's a massive commitment to be recruited and to commit to the armed services. To join something like that, um, it, look, it's filled with so many challenges, with difficulties, it's incredibly costly, and at the same time, it is an honor and a privilege, and it is actually a huge blessing to be a part of something like that. To join a group of people who are doing something so valuable, so important, so great, But to join something like that, you must embrace the message and the mission. To sign up for something like that, you need to understand what those things are. So when the military recruits in whatever country you're in, typically they're very clear about what the message is, what the mission is, how they're going to accomplish it. You don't see very often in things like the military that are, are so important, a, a kind of bait and switch tactic, right? You never hear recruitment for the military. It's like, hey, join the military. It's going to be a ton of fun. Or come, come join the military, it, it, you're going to earn a ton of money. Come on and join the military, it's going to be the easiest thing you ever did. You never hear messages like that. Make no mistake about it. I, I think they're very clear in their messaging. It's going to be hard, it's costly, it requires an incredible amount of discipline and focus and attention. It's costly, but, but the compelling reason to be a part of it is because you are joining something truly great. You are a part of something that is having an incredible impact. And they have to be clear on the message and the, message, message and the mission, just like the church has to be clear on the message and the mission. You see, my contention this morning is that many have been recruited to the church with a faulty understanding of what the church is, what its message is, and what its mission is. They're being recruited to something that is not actually the church as God has defined it in his word. They're being recruited to a kind of church. And then they're rightly confused and frustrated when they read their Bible and their Bible seems to convey a message and a mission that seems radically different than the thing that they actually joined. Understanding what you are called to and what you're called into when it comes to the church especially, it sets the right expectation right out the gates. It provides therefore the best motivation to be a part of it and to continue to do life in that context and it produces the deepest participation in it. You see, God is in the business of recruiting. It's called the gospel. And he's recruiting people into something incredibly important and special, something truly great, something with which there is no comparison, and it's called the church of Jesus Christ. God is calling people into the church. He himself being the king of the church, we his people, the citizens of his kingdom. When Jesus recruits people into the church, he is abundantly clear about the message and the mission, or to put it another way, he is abundantly clear about the confession and the commission. And he calls us into, and he gives us authority to act on his behalf as ambassadors, as citizens of his kingdom. And so he expects then us to be clear about these things. What is the church's message and mission? And I want to look at these two things this morning from Matthew chapter 16, 13 through 19. Let's read it together. Jesus 
is speaking here, and it's important to understand that this is the first time Jesus alludes to this concept of the church. He says in verse 13, he says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Here we see Jesus speaking to his disciples, and he calls them into something special. He calls them into the church, and what he does is he calls them to do two specific things. The first thing he calls them to, and what he calls the church to is this, to reveal Christ. This is our great kingdom confession. This is the message that is critical to the mission. Jesus has been recruiting his 12 disciples for some time now. He has been living them. He's called them very specifically and intentionally by name to join him, to follow him, to give up their jobs, uh, to leave their families, and to come and follow him. He's been working with them intentionally, training them, teaching them, instructing them. And now he turns to them at a critical time in their lives and in the ministry that he is himself on and that he is calling them into. And he sets this all up by asking them this very simple question, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now he's clearly talking about himself as he will turn around and say, yeah, but now to who do you say I am? They understand that he has claimed to be the son of man, uh, an Old Testament reference to the Messiah, to the promised one, the deliverer of the nation of Israel. He looks at them and he asks them, tell me who people say that I am. Do you hear, who, who do you say that I am, by the way, is plural that he asks his disciples. He's asking all of them, the context is the group, uh, all 12 of them, they're gathered together For sure, Peter is the leader. Peter is identified here as the the one who speaks. Uh, Peter as part of the inner circle of Jesus. Peter, James, and John, he's one of the closest friends of Jesus. He's clearly been given some kind of a, a leadership position among the disciples. If you know anything about Peter, he's never short of opinions and never shy about sharing them. He's the one here in this context who steps up with the answer But here their collective voice speaks, so to say, and they begin to describe who others say that Jesus is. And they clearly are reflecting the fact that many people believe Jesus is somebody important, that Jesus is even sent from God. He's a prophet, he's John the Baptist, he's Elijah, he's Jeremiah. They clearly see him as speaking as somebody who is sent from God. But Jesus turns the tables on them, and he says, listen, it doesn't as much matter 
what other people say about me. What matters most is what you say about me. So he zeroes in on their hearts, on their lives, and on their minds, and he says, who do you say that I am? Again, Peter is the first one to step out of the plate, and he makes one of the most stunning statements in all of the word of God, and it is for sure one of the most powerful. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Nailed it. He couldn't have given a better answer than that. Again, this crucial moment here in the life of the disciples, Peter gets it absolutely right, bang on, and don't miss the importance of this statement. It is loaded with theological meaning. It is the first time we see any of the disciples truly confess who Jesus is. They've seen it, they've thought it, they've known they should probably worship him, They're stunned by him, all of the miracles, the displays of power, the statements he's made about being from God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And here, right here, he finally acknowledges what nobody else has been willing to acknowledge up until this point. I'm calling it for what it is, Peter says. You are the Son of God. You are God in flesh. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's what Peter's saying. You're the promised Messiah. You're the one sent from heaven. You're the one we've been waiting for. You're the one that all the prophets that everybody thinks that you are, they pointed to you. You are the one. You're the answer to all of our problems. We've been waiting for you since humanity fell into sin. We've been waiting since Genesis 3.15 the promised one who will crush the head of the serpent. You are the one. That's what Peter is saying. Now listen, I don't think Peter understood all that he was saying, but make no mistake about it. He nails it here. Like every Old Testament saint, pre-cross and resurrection, he saw that God would bring a promised deliverer to the nation to set people free. He doesn't know what he's saying in one sense, but he knows what he's saying in another. Here, Jesus is revealed to be who he truly is by the mouth of Peter. Let me just say this, that what you truly believe about Jesus is the most important thing about you. It is. What you truly believe about Jesus is the most important thing about you. By the way, um, this is a great tactic that Jesus uses. It's something that we can embrace in our evangelistic efforts, in our apologetics efforts in defending the faith. Um, if, you, if you're trying to look for a bridge into people's lives to have a gospel conversation, I talk to, to Christians all the time. They're like, how do I have these kind of conversations? This is a great conversation starter. Hey, uh, who do you think Jesus is? That's a great conversation starter. I mean, you want to get a whole bunch of different understandings of what people think Jesus is, you know, just ask that question in any kind of a setting and you will get an answer. I promise you that. Some people are like, oh, I'm not really sure. Other people will say things like, you know what? He was a great teacher. Uh, He was a a historical figure. Uh, You know, he was a prophet for sure. But here's the question for you this morning. Who do you say that Jesus is? Do you believe that Jesus was and is the promised Messiah? who came to earth to save us from our sins, to conquer sin and death and to reign and rule over us as Lord. That's what Peter essentially is stating without him understanding the full implications. He doesn't quite understand the death and resurrection yet, but he will. It's important to realize that this knowledge, by the way, 
This revelation from the lips of Peter is not due to human cleverness or uh, even profound spiritual insight. It wasn't like Peter just came to this conclusion on his own one day and he figured this all out because he was smart enough, because he paid close enough attention. I want you to see exactly what Jesus says. I mean, who is the, the one behind all of this revelation? Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon bar Jonah. That's basically his last name. It simply means Simon, um, son of a guy named Jonah. That's important. That's not just a small detail in the text. Blessed are you, son of a guy named Jonah. Why? He's identifying his lineage. Where do you come from, Simon? You are son of a man named Jonah. But listen to this. But flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. You see what he's saying there? You, you are of the flesh, Peter, but the flesh had no ability to reveal this insight and truth to you. But, listen to this language. This is one of the first times Jesus speaks like this in the Gospels. My father, he says, look, it wasn't your father. It wasn't an earthly father. It was my father, the spiritual father. My father who is in heaven. This is such a powerful, powerful point that he is making to Peter. He is identifying the source of Peter's confession of the truth of who Jesus is. Jesus is stating very clearly that any ability to make this confession genuinely from the heart, to truly believe this in a life-transforming way, is not the product of human ability. It's the product of divine revelation. You see, Peter reveals Christ only because God has revealed Christ to Peter. Salvation in the scriptures, cover to cover, is a supernatural work of God. It is a miracle that any one of us is in here right now. Do you realize that? It is a supernatural miracle of God. If you have confessed what Peter has confessed, that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father, it is a miracle of God. Some have argued throughout church history that the miracle of salvation is by far greater than the miracle of creation. I believe that with all my heart. And now, based on Peter's confession of Jesus as Messiah and Son of God, Jesus responds by saying this, look at verse 18 with me, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, this is one of the most um, debated passages in all of the Bible. This one verse has caused all kinds of questions and controversies, all throughout the history of the church, everybody wants to understand what the foundation of the church is. I mean, what's the rock that's being referred to here? You may have an opinion on that. So what is the rock that the church is built on? Here's some suggestions that people have thrown out in church history. Is it Peter? Is Peter the rock? How about Jesus? Is Jesus the rock, this rock that he's referring to? How about, is it the apostles? Jesus is speaking to all of the apostles right then and right there. Is it the gospel? Is it his confession that he makes there? Is that the rock that's being talked about? I mean, which one is it? Yes. In a sense, yes is the answer to all of those things. Let me explain just a minute. Listen, there's good biblical precedent for every one of those answers. 
There, there just is. I mean, the scriptures even contextually kind of point to Peter in one sense. Um, the church is referred to in one sense. Uh, the apostles are referred to as the rock in Ephesians 2.20, the foundation. Um, Jesus is referred to as the rock, the cornerstone, the gospel. It makes a lot of sense. You see, biblically, in one sense, all of these work, but, but contextually, right here in this passage, what, what fits best? That's the question we need to answer this morning. What fits best based on this context? Now, um, here's, here's where I'm going to go. We're not going to go into all the different views on this. this. That would take multiple sermons over multiple weeks, and I don't think you or I have the patience for that. But most commentators acknowledge that the text reads plainly as Peter being the rock. Now, before you get all crazy and think that we're going Catholic, just hang on, Okay. What's really interesting here in this passage is that there's a play on words that a lot of people miss. It's hard to see in the English. You see it in the Greek. You see the name Peter, guess what it means? Rock. Jesus is intentionally playing off of the name Peter as if um, he was named that on purpose or something. Jesus acknowledges then, in, in some sense, listen, some kind of foundation in Peter. And some people say, well, he's contrasting um, Peter, you, Peter, and this rock. And he's making a statement of difference. That's possible. It's, it's arguable for sure. It's definitely possible. But I think, listen, if, if some kind of difference is intended here, this rock that Jesus refers to is the confession that Peter makes. Some people want to try and separate the confession from the man, but I think it's very difficult in this context to do that. It's the man who makes the confession. It's it's Peter who steps up and first confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah. And in essence, if that's true, what Jesus is saying is this, I tell you, you are rock, Peter, And on this rock, I will build my church. By God's grace alone, Peter has just confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's by the power of God revealing it to Peter, making it known to him. And immediately now, after this confession, Jesus spoke of the church that he is building upon Peter and his confession of faith. So here's what I want to say to you. It seems most likely that here, what we see as the rock is Peter and his confession. It's both. It's it's the man and the confession that comes out of his mouth that will be the bedrock foundation for the church in one sense. Now, let me kind of develop this a little bit and we'll, we'll move out from here. You see, Peter, in one sense, becomes the foundation for the church and we see that developing in the book of Acts. If you read through the book of Acts, you see that Peter holds a place of prominence in the life of the early church. It's, it's undeniable. We studied through the book of Acts uh, not long ago, and we saw this very clearly. The first 12 chapters of the book of Acts um, really emphasize Peter's role in laying the foundation for the church of Jesus Christ. It's amazing, when you read in Acts chapter 2, the very first sermon that's preached on the day of Pentecost is the sermon delivered by who? Peter. How many people are saved? 3,000. He lays out the, the rock of the gospel message, the rock of Jesus Christ And 3,000 people are saved that day. Right after this, the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching of the word, and thousands more came to Christ in the days ahead, according to Acts 2, 42 through 47. Jesus, you see, was building his church 
And Peter continued to play a central role in the mission throughout the first 12 chapters. But I want to say this, look, Peter was not alone. He he wasn't the only one who would become the rock or the foundation. Again, Ephesians 2.20 says this, that the foundation of the church is built upon the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. You see, so in one sense, Jesus is the rock. A cornerstone was laid first, and it set the trajectory for the entire structure. But the apostles are built off of that cornerstone. They are lined up so that everything is true and level. It's all straightened out because they're alignment to Jesus Christ. And as they're built out, they lay this foundation through the word of God that they preach about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And slowly but surely, the word of God builds up the people of God and the church is built up and strengthened. Now, let me be very clear. This is not in any way identifying Peter as the Pope, okay? This is not saying that Peter is going to be of the one with an individual authority like no others. That's not what this is teaching. This is not saying that there must be a succession of people who come from Peter that will now establish sole authority in the life of the church. It's not what it's teaching. By the way, you say, well, how do you know that? Well, let me tell you one way you know that. We know that Peter was not perfect. He often spoke error. He often did sinful things. In fact, he is just in the same passage. Listen, after he is being told, you are the rock, and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You drop down and what you see is Peter getting in the way of Jesus' plan to go to the cross. And what does he call him? He says, get behind me, Satan. (laughs) I mean, that should be breaking news for the Catholic church, right? This just in, Jesus calls Peter Satan. That's not good news. Fake news. It's not, it's true. Jesus said it. Peter was not perfect. He's called Satan in this very context, just a few verses later. We know that he denies Jesus three times. And by the way, in the early chapters of the book of Acts, um, Paul has to rebuke Peter for racism. Peter is unique, even amongst the apostles in this context, but he is not supreme. He's unique because he's the first one to make this declaration. And Jesus is saying, yes, you got it, Peter. Now we can get to work. You made the confession. You made the statement. Now let's get to work in building the church here. You see, based on the immediate context, this is how we should understand the rock of the church. It is in this immediate context, Peter and the confession that he makes. Now listen, by extension, you say, how does this apply to us? Here's how it applies. You want to know what the rock of the church is today? It is this, the people of God proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or to put it another way, it is the apostolic church proclaiming the apostolic gospel. It is the church that is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets preaching the same gospel that they preached. The faith, as Jude says, once and for all delivered to the saints, an unadulterated faith which finds its historical lineage traced back all the way to Peter and, yes, to Jesus himself. And here's why this matters for you and me. I love what Martin Luther says. In the height of the Reformation, he declared these words, all who agree with the confession of Peter are Peter's themselves setting a sure foundation. When we act like Peter and we declare what Peter declares, we too become a foundation for the gospel and for Jesus to continue to build his church. Listen to how 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5 says it. I love this language. As you come to him, a living stone, that's a rock by the way, a stone is a rock, 
rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up. You is plural. Listen, as a spiritual house, here it is. To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see, this reminds us that as we proclaim the gospel, we too become the means through which and upon which Jesus is building his church, one rock at a time, placed properly just the way Jesus wants it. As I mentioned earlier, this is the first mention of the word church from the mouth of Jesus in the gospels. What what does it mean? What does the word church exactly mean? Well, the word itself was not unique to uh, the Christian people. Um, it was a common word, actually, in the ancient world, and it simply meant assembly or gathering. It was used in a, um, an unbiblical or a pagan sense, even. But here, it clearly identifies a group of people. You see, what's happening here is incredibly strategic in the ministry of Jesus. Christ is institutionalizing the church here. You say, why is that important? Because there's a lot of people who say, well, you know what, the church is just about me and God, and and they think of the universal church at large, about you're brought into the family of God. Those are all, in one sense, some true things. But I think that is a common misconception that many people have when it comes to the church. The church is an organization. It is an institution. It is divinely established by God. It is, yes, a gathering and an assembling, but it has order and structure because it has intentionality in terms of its purpose and design. It's moving somewhere. It's not static. It is dynamic. It is organic. It is intended by God to be moving forward. And Christ here is institutionalizing the church. He is saying that this group of people is now going to have structure and order and purpose and intentionality. I'm going to build it up like a house. This should come as no surprise to us. God is in the process, by the way, at this point in in redemptive history and transitioning away from a theocratic nation, um, the nation of Israel, which by the way had structure and order and intentionality and purpose. It was designed by God to reflect God to the world. It was designed so that people could come into the nation of Israel and see what the true and living God actually looked like. He was different from all the other gods of the world and they saw that as they saw the people of God functioning like the people of God. But in redemptive history, we're transitioning into this new era, the era of the church. Paul calls this this one new man, a separate entity, Jews and Greeks merged into one, but structure and organization is there. He's establishing a new entity with a charter of rights and responsibilities. You see, the church is an embassy of sorts. It's an embassy of the kingdom of God. Pastor Brian mentioned last week that we serve the king of kings, Jesus Christ. 
The kingdom is here in part, but it's not here in full. It's an already not yet tension. The king is coming back and he's going to reclaim his kingdom where there is full, unmatched submission to his authority. But here and now, there is a glimpse of the kingdom. There is a taste of the kingdom. There is a display of the kingdom. There is an embassy of the kingdom of which we are ambassadors. It's called the church. When we gather together as the people of God, we are actually on foreign soil around us, but standing on kingdom soil amid us. The structured church is the medium that Jesus intends to use for conveying his gospel message, for revealing Christ, for protecting that message, for displaying that message, for holding it up and making it attractive and putting it to work for advancing his kingdom on earth. This is the first question that we must answer from this text. Have I been called into the church by God? If this is what the church is all about, if this is the message of the church, if this is the confession of the church, here's your question. Have I been called into the church by God? Has God revealed the truth about Jesus to me and have I revealed that by confessing allegiance to him? Because it's time to get to work. It begins here. Entrance into the kingdom happens through the confession of Jesus Christ as Lord. That's what God calls us to, to reveal Christ first with our lips because he has revealed it to our hearts. This is our great kingdom confession. Secondly, God calls his people to represent Christ, which is our great kingdom commission. Now, we've alluded to this, but I want to develop this a little bit more. You see, the king has established an embassy on foreign soil His authority reigns supreme, but now he delegates his authority. He is not currently here present with us in the physical sense, but he is here in a spiritual sense with us. He indwells his people. He indwells his church, and his authority is to be manifested through the body of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ. This next passage is, again, debatable as well, but it is loaded with metaphors that describe how his authority is exercised and displayed in the life of the church. One verse, again, a couple metaphors there. He says this to Peter, again, if you just kind of lump this together, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Here's what he says to Peter. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Two metaphors, the first one involving this idea of locking and unlocking keys. The second metaphor dealing with binding and loosing. You don't usually bind and loose with keys. You do some, you know, that's other stuff. Uh, But here the first metaphor is this picture of keys. He gives these keys. There's the delegation of authority. And this first metaphor, again, this idea of keys refers to this process of locking and unlocking. That's what keys do. Opening and shutting, in other words. But the basic idea here that you need to grab a hold of is this, that it speaks both to the idea of entry into and exclusion from the church. That's what he's talking about. The context is is so clear. He is saying that there is an authority that's given to let people into the church or to exclude people from being a part of the church. And he's actually saying that this is essential to the life of the church. This is not something that's negotiable. This is something that is paramount. It is critical for the health and the life of the church to be exercising this kind of authority. 
Why? Because if you do not guard the gates of the church carefully, pretty soon what you have is not a church. If the church is made up of people who are confessing the right thing, the message about Jesus Christ, that becomes the entry point into the life of the church. And if you remove that piece, then what you have is something else other than the church. When Peter or the other apostles or any other follower of Christ, for that matter, proclaims the gospel, here's what you need to know and what I need to know, it is done under Jesus' authority. We are called to be kingdom ambassadors, delegated this authority to proclaim who can become a part of the church and who must be, by the very nature of their own confession, excluded from the church. We proclaim his authority to save sinners, and we proclaim, at the same time, his authority to judge sinners. Now, Jesus' authority to save means that we can say to any person in the world, if you turn from your sin and you trust in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, you will be free from sin forever. You will be washed white as snow. You will be accepted into the presence of God for all eternity. You will become an adopted member of the family of God. You too will become an ambassador in the kingdom of God. We have the authority granted to us by God to declare that because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's a guarantee based on the authority of Jesus and his word. Now, that's the fun part, isn't it? I mean, the the best part about being ambassador for Christ is we get to tell people the best news in the world. You can be free from your sin. You, You get to go to heaven. You get God. That's the greatest news in the world. And that's the easy part of this, by the way. That's the easiest thing in the world to declare as Christians. In fact, that has become one of the staples in the vast majority of churches in the world. They love to declare this part of the good news. You can be free. Come to Jesus. He can save you. Life can be so much better with Jesus, which is all true. But it in one sense stops short of the whole gospel. And this actually, I believe, is one of the reasons why the church struggles in many ways to represent Christ in a healthy way today. They are consumed with sharing this part of the message and they miss the other side of the message. You see, at the same time, we are called by God to not just open the door, but to close the door. To unlock the door with the keys of the gospel, but to shut the door and lock it with the same keys of the gospel. You see, at the same time, we can say, you can come in, you can be forgiven, you can be washed and set free and enjoy the presence of God for all eternity. We can also say, and we must also say to people in this world, if you do not turn from your sin and trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord, you are bound in your sin, you are locked in the prison of your sin, and you will have to pay for your sin in hell for all of eternity. Authority has been entrusted to us, the church, to proclaim this message. This is the heart of everything we do as the people of God. We tell people whether or not they are going to heaven or to hell, whether or not they're in God's kingdom or out of God's kingdom, all based, listen, not on our individual authority, but in the authority of God's word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now listen, this, this last half that I just discussed here about hell and paying for sin, this is the hard part. 
This is the part that is intolerable in our world of inclusion and a world that hates any kind of discrimination, any kind of talk of judgment. I mean, this is thrown in your, I know it is. Anytime you share the gospel and you tell people this side of the message, I know so many people in this world want to say, you, you can't judge me. That's discriminatory. That's what our world and our culture is teaching us, that there's no such thing as drawing lines, that you can't discriminate in any way, shape, or form. It's no wonder they hate God. This is the hard part of the message that we preach, but it is also the vital part, especially in today's day and age when everybody wants to believe that all roads lead to the top of the mountain. You see, good news is only good news if you understand the bad news, isn't it? Let me tell you how this works itself out. When, when somebody comes along and you share the gospel and, and they say, well, I believe in Jesus, just not that Jesus. You have the authority given to you by God to say, well, then you are not, you are not going to be in the presence of the true Jesus. You will go to hell and suffer for your sins. When somebody comes along and says, well, I'm, I'm really glad that you have faith there, but I believe in a different God. I'm a part of a different religious group. You have every right vested in you by the authority of the God of heaven and earth, the King of kings, to say, listen, with confidence, but listen, with love and grace and mercy, what you believe will not save you. It will land you separated from God, paying for your sins in hell for eternity. Any deviation from the true Jesus, any deviation from the true Jesus in the gospel message gives you the authority to speak on behalf of the God of the Bible about the reality of their eternity. You see, being a part of the church is not simply like joining a club. It is an extremely important confession with eternal ramifications. And these ramifications are not only for being a part of the church, but also for what we do as a church. We speak, listen, this is, this is a needed message in today's world because we are so intimidated by the world around us. So many of us are so fearful about sharing the message, we're so fearful about our reputation, we're so fearful we're not gonna be accepted, we're so fearful we're gonna lose our job, whatever it is, and I'm not suggesting you go out there and be dumb. Don't offend people needlessly. But for goodness sakes, like eternity is on the line. And if we aren't willing to tell people that if they continue to live in their sin and won't turn to the true Jesus as Lord Almighty of their lives, we need to be able to say to them that they're going to die in their sins and they're going to pay for them for all of eternity. Eternity is a long time. A lot longer than them hating you here and now. Which you will forget one day. Probably the next day. You see, this is why we're so urgent about the gospel in this church. Some of you are walking in this church, you're like, man, these guys are fired up about this. Why he's, he's ranting and raving about it. Listen, we are urgent about the gospel. I mean, listen, we, we, love, we love Jesus Christ. He is the king of our church, and we love the message of salvation because it has saved us from an eternity of paying for our sins, amen? I mean, we are fired up about the gospel, and we need to be more fired up about the gospel. We need to be fired up, that's a bad use of language, about people's eternity,
The urgency and priority of evangelism is one of the key implications that flows from these truths that we're studying this morning. We are inviting people, yes, into a loving relationship, freedom from sin, but we are inviting them also, listen, I want you to hear this, this is so important, to come under the kingly rule of Jesus Christ. This is so critical, this is so often missed, and I need to major on this for just a moment. You see, Peter's confession wasn't just a statement about what was true. It was an acknowledgement about what was then true of him. It was a statement that Jesus is king, and at the same time, it was a declaration that Peter understood his role, which was to come under the lordship and the authority of the king. This is a huge problem in the culture, uh, Western culture in particular, but in many cultures in the church, it's been coined uh, in the past as easy believism. Um, I was talking with some of the elders this morning, and and, uh, um, this thought popped into my mind. Here's what it is. Listen, this kind of easy believism where you can just simply pray a prayer, walk an aisle, get baptized, and then live however you want, as if that's somehow the definition of Christianity, is so against the testimony of the word of God. You have to hear this. It is so foreign from the testimony of the word of God that you can simply pray a prayer and think you're saved without any change in your life, without any submission to Jesus as Lord. Peter is making a declaration of the lordship of Jesus Christ. Here's here's what I'm gonna call this this morning. This is a kind of Christianity that's peddled because it fills churches, it makes people feel good about themselves. It's the easy part of salvation. Just believe and you'll be saved. You go to heaven, pray this prayer, you'll go to heaven, everything is amazing. This is no-cost Christianity, and it is not biblical Christianity. In the church, listen, I don't care how many people fill a church that proclaims a message where there is no cost to Christianity. That, I don't care how big the stadium is. It doesn't matter. The true church is made up of people who have truly confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord, and their lives demonstrate it. That's the church. I was talking to a guy when we were away this past week, and he was, it's funny, I was sitting there with my hat, just sitting there, and he asked me about my hat, <laughs> the logo on the hat, is one of the church hats. I'm like, sweet, it works. <laughs> and I got a chance to sit there and to share with him about, you know, our church and, and what we believe about the gospel, and he's like, yeah, that's, that's awesome. He's like, I'm a Christian too. And I'm like, well, tell me your story. Like, tell me what you believe. He's like, I'm in the South. Everybody's a Christian. I'm like, awesome. And so he just tells me his story, and one of the things he says to me, he's, he's trying, to, trying to figure out what kind of Christian I am, too. So he's making all kinds of like, so I'm like, do you believe that? I'm like, I don't know, what do you believe? <laughs> and uh, um, we're, we're just talking about the gospel, and he just, he says, you know, I just need, I feel like I need to tell you this. He's like, you know, I, I was, um, I, I used to claim to be a Christian for so long, but, but I realized that I wasn't really a Christian. I was a, he says, I was a CEO Christian. I'm like, oh, that sounds pretty important. It's like, Christmas and Easter only Christian. And he says, you know, and he says to me, he's like, I, I see this all the time, especially in the South. You know, we have people who just, you know, they'll attend every once in a while. They want to claim to be Christ, but they live however they want. They live a worldly life. They don't live in any way aligned with the word of God and the message of Jesus Christ. And he said, I, I, don't, believe, I don't believe those people are Christians. He said, what do you believe? I said, well, I believe what you just said is very biblical. Romans 10, 9 and this is consistent from cover to cover in the scriptures. On the screen behind me, Romans 10, 9, here's what Paul says. He says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is, come on, church, say it with me, Lord, Lord, right? And if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Listen, you've got to believe the right things, but you've got to confess and submit to the right thing. 
Parents with kids, let me, just, let me just apply this for you really carefully. Some of your kids are making professions of faith in Jesus Christ. They're saying some of the good things. And, and praise God for that. Um, we're seeing that even in our house right now, and, and we're watching carefully. But listen, I have watched parents be so quick to affirm our child's profession of faith and claim uh, to the world that their child has been saved because they prayed a little prayer when they're three. I'm not opposed to God saving young kids. Don't get me wrong. I've watched new believers just pray a prayer, and everybody celebrates as if, you know, man... They're for sure saved. And again, I'm not denying that God doesn't save people. And so I think he does. But I just want to help you think through this. You see, my concern is that we're so quick to affirm the right words and the right, right beliefs without affirming the right life that demonstrates submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. So one of the things we watch in our kids, we tell our kids this, we're so thankful you're, you're professing faith in Jesus Christ and, and we're, we're praying for you, we're praising God for this, but here's what we're watching. We're watching to see if your life demonstrates that you are submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ that you begin to have new desires, longings to submit to Jesus Christ, longings to be in the presence of Jesus Christ, longings to be in his word, longings to pray. Like you're, you're not being coaxed to do these things, you're not being um, convinced outside of yourself just to do, that, that these desires are naturally forming within you because the spirit of God truly is living inside of you. You say, well why, why would you make it so costly? Like, why do we have to draw this line so sharply? Why can't they just pray? Listen to verse 24 of 16. Just look at it with me. Uh, this is not me. This is Jesus. Jesus told disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever, listen, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Can you just hear in that the statement of the lordship of Jesus Christ? This is not a church. Listen, why are we preaching a message on the church? Because way too many people believe that going to church is just playing a game. Not you, you're all great. But so many people like, forget Christmas and Easter only. Listen, there's churches filled with Sunday only Christians. You know what I mean by that, right? You come on Sunday, you play the game, you look like a Christian, and then you go live however you want throughout the week. You pretend that Jesus is Lord one day a week then you live every other day of the week as if you're Lord. You just need to be warned. Listen, that is not biblical Christianity. And you say, why are you so serious about this? Because Jesus is serious about this. I don't want any one of you, listen, this is, this is a desperate, listen, you need to hear love in this and grace in this, but you need to hear a desperation for your soul. I don't want any one of you, listen, I take this so seriously as a shepherd of God's flock who will give an account for your souls before God. I desperately do not want any one of you on my watch standing before Jesus one day and hearing these words, uh, Lord, Lord, uh, I, I, I cast out demons in your name. I did many miraculous signs in your name. I prophesied in your name. And, and then Jesus will turn and say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who work lawlessness. Hear those words, work lawlessness? That is a statement of a lack of submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ. You did not work righteousness. You did not submit your life to my lordship. You lived the life of unrighteousness, of lawlessness. You wouldn't submit to me. Doesn't matter what you said. Lord, Lord, I know you. Look what I did for you. It doesn't matter. What matters is the submission of your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be in the church of Jesus Christ. That's how you represent Christ. Because if that's what you do in your heart, listen, it changes everything about you. It changes the way you behave. It changes the way you live. It changes all of your conduct. So we see here the authority, not just to establish initial entrance, which the gospel does, but we see here the authority as well given to establish ongoing conduct. 
God is so serious about this in the life of the church, about Christians. Get this, get this. God is actually serious about Christians acting like Christians. It's amazing, isn't it? Novel concept. And he uses this language here, a second metaphor, about binding and loosing. You see, here's the point of ongoing conduct in one sense. We represent Christ when we reveal him with our lips and when we reflect him with our lives. Just like, by the way, in the Old Testament system, the Old Testament um, Judaism, the people of God were called to live in a way that made them distinct and unique from the people around them. Listen, the, the, the same concept is just transferred to the new people of God in the church. You're gonna live a different way. Well, how do we live? According to my law. And when you live according to my law, guess what? You're gonna look very different from all the world around you. And here's what's gonna happen. They're gonna look at you and say, something's different about you. You guys act and behave very differently. You don't embrace what we embrace. You don't worship who we worship. You don't talk the way we talk. Like all these things are different. What exactly is the reason for that? You see how this works? The church on earth is a society of people who represent the king in his kingdom. And we do so with both our confession and with our conduct. That's what binding and loosing is getting at here. It's not used uh, about the keys. These are related, the keys and the, the, the binding and loosing. But there is a difference. Keys are used for unlocking and locking ropes. Or excuse me, binding and loosing can be used of ropes, of gravity, but more importantly of laws. That's what we see in Scripture. You see, the church has been given the authority to regulate the conduct of its members. And by that, I, I don't mean some kind of in your life, every detail, pulling it apart. That's not what we're talking about. But here what we need to see is this, that the church is called to regulate the conduct of the church. And we all play a role in this. This isn't one person inspecting every area of your life. This is together, all of us, looking at the ongoing conduct of the bride of Christ. The purity of the church is a very big deal to the God of the church. I love what Jonathan Lehman says. He says this, to put it crassly, one must believe the right things to get in and one must believe the right things to stay in. You need to believe the gospel and demonstrate that through submission to the gospel and then you need to believe the word of God and demonstrate submission to the word of God to stay in the people of God. The apostles would be used of God to give of the charter of rights or the code of conduct to the church through divine revelations. Right here, it's the word of God. The word of God is the means by which we evaluate the conduct of believers about our own lives and about the lives of, of those around us. Now what's interesting is that the language of binding and loosing is used the second time Jesus speaks about the church in Matthew chapter 18. Just flip over there. And in Matthew chapter 18, again, um, many of you are familiar with this passage, is dealing with um, church discipline. Again, the conduct of life in the believing community. And how we operate, how we address sin in particular, how we restore one another, how we confront one another when we see sin in our lives and people living in rebellion to the king of kings. And essentially this passage, we're going to look at it in a couple weeks, so I won't go into, into too much detail, but this passage tells us that our conduct in the church is of the utmost importance to God. He shows us here again that authority is given to the church. Listen to what he says in verse 18. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The, 
the picture here, again, is of regulating the conduct, of addressing conduct that does not represent the king. He is saying that what we do as a church in his name, with his authority, is a reflection of what he does in heaven. Wherever we address sin on earth in the embassy of the kingdom, Jesus in heaven agrees with that. We know the things that are forbidden and permitted because we have the foundation of his word. We don't make these things up as we go. We don't determine things outside of his word to forbid people or to bind people. We yet let the word of God do its work in our lives and in our community. As much as the church aligns itself with the word of God, it is aligned with heaven itself. See, so why is that? Because God's word is always supreme and perfectly obeyed in heaven. So if someone comes to the church and says, I am living in sin, I am a follower of Jesus and I profess faith in him, but I am living in sin. If that sin is identified, if it is demonstrated and shown to the person and they will not repent and turn to Christ, then here we are, we are told we have the authority to say to that person, listen, your sin has bound you. You are living in sin and your sin right now is not forgiven. It is in the positional sense, but in the practical, immediate sense. It's not for you right now under the condemnation in one sense of God. You're under um, bondage to your sin. To be clear, their sin is not unforgiven because we said so. Their sin is unforgiven because Christ has said so in his word. There's not been the exchange that's taken place through repentance. Jesus has given us the privilege of proclaiming what he has said to be true. God is serious about the purity of the church. And here's why this matters, because unchecked sin produces unhealthy churches. Unhealthy churches produce ineffective Christians. And they actually bring reproach upon the king of the church. The church has this authority because it has this great responsibility, listen, to represent Christ. And let me just draw in one more text to show you the authority that's been delegated. Flip forward in your Bible to Matthew chapter 28. Known as the Great Commission, Christ says again in verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Listen, here's the extension and delegation of that authority. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Here's what I want to draw out here. This is the heartbeat of our church. Go and make disciples. That's the point of Jesus' words there. And then he tells us how to do it by going, by baptizing, and by teaching. Now, I want to just draw attention to one little thought there, one little aspect of making disciples, this idea of teaching. You notice that he emphasizes this. This is how we make disciples. People are saved. People are baptized to publicly demonstrate their union with Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. And now we teach them the ongoing ministry of discipleship and the church of Jesus Christ but I want you to see that there's something interesting here that I think is often missed. What do we teach them? We teach them to know the truth, right? Is that what it says? We teach them to believe the truth. Is that what it says there? Did, did you catch this? You may never have caught this before. Teaching them, look at this word, to observe all that I commanded you. 
Do you see that Jesus wasn't just concerned that you know the truth and believe the truth? He was concerned that you obey the truth. Because in obeying the truth, the Great Commission is furthered in advance. The kingdom of God moves forward when God's people look like God's people. The word observed means this, to persist in obedience, to keep, to observe, to fulfill, to pay attention to. And if we are going to reveal the message of Christ, we must strive to represent Christ. That means that we must faithfully reflect Christ. Listen, Jesus must change you to use you. It's true of all of us. He must grow you and mature you so that you can be more fruitful and effective in his kingdom for his purposes. And here's why this is so important. You're like, well, do I really need to be changed that much? Listen, if your faith hasn't changed you, your faith hasn't saved you. This is the lordship of Jesus Christ. This is the king over his kingdom. See, why is that, why is that true? Because the very nature of salvation is a change in your nature. To be saved means that you move from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. To be saved means, listen, that you have been brought from death to life. To be saved means that you have been placed in the kingdom, under the king, with a new purpose. And the church is the primary context to produce the change in our lives. By helping us root out sin and increase holiness. By helping us give glory to him and to worship him truly. I'm going to invite the worship team up now. And as we close, I want you just to hang in there with me. I want you to imagine for a moment that you are being recruited to the greatest institution, the greatest organization, the greatest movement, the greatest mission, the greatest thing this earth has ever known. It has the greatest message and it has the greatest mission. It has the greatest responsibility and it has the greatest ramifications. There is nothing bigger than what you can be a part of. There is nothing better than what you can be a part of. It is hard, it is challenging, it is costly, but there is nothing that compares and there is nothing that even comes close. That is the church called by God to reveal Christ and represent Christ, to pick up our cross daily and follow Jesus, to give up everything that we might gain everything. Now, I want you to imagine now, listen, with that truth in mind, I want you to imagine that you also had this promise, that Jesus Christ looked you in the eyes the moment you declared your allegiance to him, and he looked at you and he said, now, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Imagine you are a part of the greatest institution on earth with the greatest promise on earth that not only are your sins forgiven and your eternity secured, but you are a part of recruiting others to join what God is doing. Something that is truly, truly a work of God. Persecution can't stop it. Human government can't stop it. Death can't stop it. Satan can't stop it. No force on earth or in heaven can stop it. Jesus is building his church. 
and it cannot be stopped. That's what we are a part of. That is the church of Jesus Christ. That's what God is recruiting you to even this morning, and it's what he's calling us to be. May he give us grace to do and to be what he is calling us to do and to be. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would help us in this. Believing, God, that you are faithful and true. Believing, Father, that you are kind to us. We pray now, Lord, that you would use us, that you would use us to advance your kingdom here on earth. May we reveal you to the world around us by the confession of our lips. And may we represent you to the world around us by the conduct of our lives. We pray this in the powerful and precious name of our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen.